You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Lee Dugatkin, who is a professor of biology at University of Louisville, and also the author of many books, including one of the seminal texts, I think, in the area of evolutionary biology or animal behavior called Principles of Animal Behavior. Also the author of a lot of more widely accessible books, including most recently, Power in the Wild, the Subtle and Not-So-Subtle Ways Animals Strive for Control Over Others. Other books include uh, How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog, Mr. Jefferson and the Giant Moose Behind the Crimson Curtain, and ones that I remember from way back that I really enjoyed, the Imitation Factor, and Cheating Monkeys, and Citizen Bees Welcome Lee. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Now, you wrote in the beginning of the book on power that you have shifted from cooperation to power as an area of interest. And as a social scientist, I'm thinking, okay, he's he's moving more from the Rousseauian world into the, to the Hobbesian world, right? I'd love to know a little bit more about how you approach research, because usually when you meet people in the world of animal behavior, they'll be like, I'm a slime mold guy, or I'm a primate woman, or whatever. And, you know, you seem to have zero respect for, for boundaries across all of these <laughs> different animals. I mean, I don't know, in this book, Power in the Wild, we have fish, we have birds, we have primates, we have mongooses. I mean, you just go from, you know, species to species. And given that your textbook is called Principles of Animal Behavior, it, it seems like you're really interested in teasing out some general principles, some underlying rules and structure of kind of behavior across all species. And, you know, I remember when I would, used to go to these animal behavior conferences and you would have people moving from slime. I mean, there'd be separate people, of course, but there'd be someone speaking on slime molds and then they'd be talking about primates. You know, is it really yeah. kind of this desire to look for kind of universals that is what drives your research? How have you avoided the trap of being like a, a monkey man or a, a frog person? Yeah, so it, it's a great question. So it, it started actually a, a very long time ago because, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I was sort of tinkering around in different areas. And I came across evolution and behavior almost by chance. A, a good friend of mine had been taking an animal behavior class at Cornell, and he just gave me the book and said, I bet you'd like this. And when I read it, I was just taken aback. I mean, I didn't know about this, this area at all. And at the time, I was a history major, mostly because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I started reading about evolution and behavior, I realized, you know, this is sort of the ultimate history. I mean, what we're looking for, what we're trying to do is really explain the diversity of life, particularly with respect in this case to um, animal behavior. And I, um, I fell in love with it. And um, 
And so I've always come at it right from the start from a kind of theoretical, conceptual standpoint. I mean, early on, I did quite a lot of experimental work, but but I think what drew me into the field was the concepts and, and, and the theory. And, you know, I grew up in New York City in a place called Stuyvesant Town, and pretty much the wildlife consisted of pigeons and squirrels. And, and so, you know, I wasn't one of these kids who grew up, uh, it has pictures of themselves when they were three holding a pair of binoculars, um, watching birds, and then um, just basically taking that path and becoming an ornithologist. I, I come at it very much more from the theoretical and conceptual end. And so, yeah, I mean, it's very easy for me to move from species to species, both in the experimental work I, I've done and also when I'm trying to synthesize ideas. Um, it's just my nature to work that way. The move from cooperation to power, it's not really as dramatic as it might appear to be. For one thing, I mean, I actually have done experiments on both of these for a while, but more kind of from a, a general standpoint, what I've always been fascinated by is the complexity of animal social behavior. And I'm particularly interested in, in situations where the behavior that you see is, is really nuanced and, and complex. Um, and so there's, there's all this work about that in the power book, but, but essentially that's what drew me to cooperation initially as well. Um, you know, sort of thinking about two individuals cooperating and then maybe three individuals cooperating and the effects of cooperation ripple through groups, it's really the same thing, the same approach I've taken to power. I come at it that way rather than a species-centric view of, of behavior. Now, in the book, uh, in all of your books, actually, you really gain an appreciation for the amount of observational work that people in the field have to do, right? I mean, in, in the book, you know, you take us into the lives of these researchers. You know, they had to spend all this time in tree blinds, you know, for yeah. countless hours and all the difficulties associated with going out and getting blood samples to measure testosterone and cortisol and fecal samples and all that. But I think a big part of your work is also emphasizing that the observational work, it really doesn't make sense if you don't have a theoretical structure, you know, that helps to make sense of, of that. I mean, does it make sense to think of animal behavior is being kind of divided into the theorists and the empiricists. In economics, we have the theorists over here and the empiricists over here. Should researchers do a little bit of both, right? Is it like an iterative thing? You come in with a theory, you go look at the, the observations, you see some anomalies, and then you kind of go back and customize your theory for that specific species. I mean, how, how, sh how should we think about the relationship between theoretical and, and empirical work? I think... Um... You know, the distinction in terms of, you know, what researchers do is is not quite as dichotomous as the kind of thing you were describing in economics. I, you know, there, there certainly are some people who are just strictly theoreticians. Um, they develop mathematical models of social behavior and they put the models out there and, and other people test them. And that's great. I mean, we, we need people like that. Most people are more of the school of being very familiar with the theory, if not 
sort of working their way through the equations at the level of understanding the principles, what new hypotheses does, does the theory generate? Because you really can't pick up a good animal behavior evolution journal in which the papers aren't centered that way. You know, there's there's a question that's driven by some theory which generates some hypotheses and people are going out to test it. There are people who do both. They develop the mathematical models and they go out and test them. In terms of the iterative process that you were talking about, the nature of how it plays out depends pretty much on, on the researcher in the sense that there are some people that sort of start by going out and doing natural history observations. You know, they're interested in this primate in the rainforest, and they spend a lot of time going out there and watching it. Then once they feel like they, they know the animals, then they can sort of step back and say, okay, you know, given what I understand about their natural history, you know, this is a great system for me to start looking at some question in animal behavior. Why do they forage that way? Why do they cooperate with each other? How do they make their choices of mates? And they'll, they'll tap into the theory, and then they will start doing experimental work or observational work that's specific to the particular hypothesis that they're testing. There are other people that, you know, they're more likely to start out by just being absolutely fascinated with some new from with a theory that's newer that's been out there and they just discovered and um and then they'll tailor um what species they they look at by okay, you know, here's the theory that fascinates me and I scan the literature and I find out, hey, this species looks like it's perfect. I mean, they have X, Y, and Z, and that's what you need from the theory to, to really make a strong test of it. And they go out and they, and they do that. So in, in the power book, it, it's all about work in, that's done in nature, in the wild. But there is as much, if not more, work done in much more controlled laboratory environments, um, at least for many species. I mean, you know, not for lions and chimps. Well, not for lions and that sort of thing. But there's a, a lot of work done in the field. There's a lot of work done in the laboratory. A lot of it is driven by theory. A lot of it is driven initially by observation, which is then tied to theory. But they're all very interconnected. You really can't be a good animal behaviorist these days without understanding theory and then how and then how to test it. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, you can actually do experiments, right? So it used to be thought that, oh, I yeah. mean, evolutionary biology was kind of like geology, right? I mean, you, you couldn't run experiments, but, you know, with respect to behavior, at least you, you can run experiments. Right. And so, you know, a lot of what you're describing in, in the book is let's put all these creatures in these identical nests and then see what happens. Or let's, you know, take someone out of the group and then put them back in the group. Yeah. And there's one experiment you talked about. Exactly. Was, was, was one bird, you removed him from a day and then he came back and the, the kind of boss bird right. was right. chastising him for taking the day off. <laughs> it's like, Hey, what are you doing? You know, why right. are you slacking? And so you can, you can actually run experiments by intervening or meddling with the social hierarchy and then seeing what happens to test your theory. Absolutely. And and you can do that in lots of different ways. So again, if we just kind of focus on work that's done in the field, in a lab, you have a lot more power to do that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. In the field, though, right. I mean, you can remove individuals from the, from nests or from groups, and you can look at the effect. And you, know, you have generated a hypothesis from the theory first, and you look and you'll see. Um, you can also test things 
You could test things experimentally without manipulation as well. So you might have, for example, some question you're looking at, and it predicts that under certain environmental conditions, you expect to see this kind of behavior, and under other environmental conditions, selection would favor a different kind of behavior. And if you have the right kind of system, you might have um, many populations or at very most many, many different groups that might be in different types of habitat. And you can actually then, you know, look at look at it and say, hey, you know, in habitat X, do they do what the theory th says? And in habitat Y, do they do what the theory says? You know, you're not manipulating anything, but it's still an experiment. You know, ideally, mm -hmm. in those circumstances, and people sometimes are able to do this if it's logistically possible, you, you know, you might move individual. After you've done that, you know, the looked and see, are there differences in the environments? Then maybe you'll move some individuals from one environment to the other, and you'll see how much plasticity there is in their behavior. Do they change it, or do they, are they still showing what they showed in their native environment? And so there's almost all work in animal behavior is experimental at one level or the other. You know, there's a lot of just what I would say is sort of pure natural history work that's done as well, and it sets the stage for follow-up experiments. But most of the work that you would see in, um, you know, in an animal behavior journal or even in, um, you know, a broader journal like Nature or Science or the Proceedings of the Royal Society, if it's an animal behavior paper, it involves some test of theory through experiment. Now, you, you studiously avoid commenting on, on people. You emphasize that all of your work is for non-humans. Now, as a social scientist, of course, I want to interpret everything in terms of, you know, what does this say about people? But there are some, some people in the social sciences are envious of people in the natural sciences that study animal behavior because they say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's easier in many ways. Number one, you don't have to go through IRB to the same degree. So you can run experiments without getting consent and so forth from, from the, the critters, but also we're much less likely to bring our prejudices and, and biases to the study. There's a lot more at stake when you're studying humans. Now, obviously, there are lots of people that want primates to behave a certain way because of what it says about people, but you can distance yourself. And then thirdly, you know, you're not tempted to ask the animals what they think, which you know, right. some would see as a plus, but in many ways can kind of obfuscate what's going on. And then I guess there's a fourth reason, which is that in economics, we don't really know what the objective function is, right? We say, oh, it's maximizing utility, but what could that be? Right. Maybe you get utility from not having children or having children or killing yourself or whatever. Whereas with, with animals, you know, we're very clear about what the objective function is. Yeah. But, but even there, sometimes it's kind of hard to, to measure. You talk about measuring paternity, for right. instance, is not always the, the easy, easiest thing, right? Yeah. So is having a fairly objective measure of, fitness, does that kind of help structure research and make it kind of easier to develop hypotheses, you think, than us social scientists? <laughs> we don't really understand what, what exactly the objective is. I think, yes, but I think we need to step back and, and think about that in principle and in practice. So in principle, absolutely, right? It, you know, I mean, natural selection selects among in our case, behavioral variants, and basically the behavioral variants that increase the overall fitness of an individual. And we can parse that out 
if later if you want but 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 you know just basically the number of copies of its genes that make it into the next generation typically through their kids but there are other ways as well so in principle you know it it's nice that you know whatever we're looking at that is the, that is the function that 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 natural selection is trying to maximize in practice as you hinted at i mean you know the gold standard is to be able to do long-term studies where you track whatever behavior you're interested in and at the same time look at the reproductive consequences of the different behavioral variants if you're looking at cooperation do individuals who cooperate produce more kids and grandkids on average than than those that don't that's really hard i mean you know it it, it requires long-term studies if you're again especially if you're talking about in the field and it requires the ability to track these animals in great detail and even when you track them in great detail it's often not that easy to determine Paternity. Maternity is a lot easier in a sense, right? I mean, you know, if a female gives birth to a bunch of eggs in her, you know, if there are a bunch of eggs in her nest, the odds are very, very good that the female at that nest is the mother. Whether the male is the father, that's mm -hmm. that's trickier. That's a lot harder. Then you need oftentimes need to do molecular genetic analysis, sometimes not, but oftentimes, yes. And so that's sort of the gold standard. And because it's extremely kind of logistically difficult to get, we often use proxies. And and so a first order proxy might be you can't track them their whole lives, but you, maybe you can track them one mating season in detail enough and then extrapolate. Mm -hmm. Even that's not easy sometimes. And so you might use a kind of second order proxy like, well, you know, I mean, if if they're getting more mating opportunities, then that probably means that they're producing more offspring. If they're getting more food, then that probably translates into, in the long run, more offspring. If they have better territories, again, probably means that they're, you know, so in principle, we have to sort of walk through from the gold standard back to what could be done in the field or in, in the laboratory. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit easier in principle. In practice, it's it's still very difficult to do. In the power book, I, I stayed away from it simply because, uh, honestly, I felt like there was just so much to say about what was going on in non-humans. And it was complex and, and subtle enough that it really was worth just telling that story. Fortunately, we have people like you and other people in the social sciences who are in fact very, very interested in what the animal behavior work has to say about humans. And I'm not an expert in human behavior. And, and so what I can do is I can sort of provide you and others like you with the information about what's going on in animals. And I try to do it sort of in the most precise way I can. And then, you know, you can think about what this might mean for humans. I think in the case of power, What's most interesting with respect to implications for humans is, you know, if there's certainly plenty of instances where power is just the largest individual beating up the smallest individual and getting food. And that's all well and good in the sense that, sure, that that's one way that power plays out. But it's also something that you know, we sort of know, I mean, and, and we've known it for a very, very long time. The more interesting stuff is the subtle and complex 
ways that animals strive for behavior. You know, so they're spying on each other. They're paying attention to the audience who's watching them. Mm -hmm. They're assessing in micro details what the other individuals are doing. They're forming coalitions. That's the stuff that if you're interested in human behavior, I think there's just this treasure chest of information. And I often tell my economists and social scientists friends that the real the real strength of, of the animal behavior approach here is that when you get these kind of complexities that are reminiscent of human behavior, all of a sudden, you know, if you're interested in human behavior, right, I mean, you have a sample size of one at the species level. You have, you have homo sapiens and, and that's it. I mean, you know, maybe if you were around 200,000 years ago, you might have four or five species of hominids that might be relevant. But now you have one. Now, all of a sudden, you know, if sword-tailed fish and, you know, and hyenas and baboons are showing these kinds of really socially complex things, then maybe you can start to do things like kind of pan across all of those and look for themes. You know, when do you see spying? When do you see alliances? When do you see assessment behavior. And then perhaps that provides you with some insight on human behavior. Well, one thing I found interesting, one point you make in the book is that even creatures with have, that have, you know, brains the size of pinheads are obsessed with, they have social intelligence, which means that, you know, they're constantly sizing up the hierarchy, right. power hierarchy. I mean, you, you don't, you don't use the word status in in the book, but, you know, I think status and power are correlated in, in sure. your, your discussion. Sure. Humans like to talk about status, but this social intelligence, I teach a course on competitive strategy for business students. And we talk about it as strategic intelligence, which means that the landscape in which you live, the fitness landscape is shaped, not just by nature or, you know, external nature, but it's by your conspecifics, right? By your, your colleagues. And it seems like if, if amoebas had this ability to detect the sugar gradient, one celled organisms can detect the sugar right. gradient. It means like, you know, by the time you get to be like two cells, you know, you can detect the, the, the power gradient. I mean, this is, this is so fundamental. It seems that every species, it has some element of, of social in, intelligence, right? I mean, how this is critical to survival. And very much for the same reasons that we talk about in humans, which is that, you know, most species are very gregarious. They live in social groups. Some live in social groups all the time. Others live in social groups part of the year and not other parts of the year. But very much everything that you do, again, if we just sort of, again, think about fitness, right? One of the revolutionary things that happened in the field of animal behavior was in the um, in the early 70s, we basically stole game theory from economics and and we imported it and evolutionized it because people realize, you know, what the fitness consequences of your action um, is depends on what others do, right? I mean, if, if you're aggressive, there's no inherent fitness effect of that. It depends whether or not the individual you're interacting with is aggressive or they're not, right? I mean, it's a lot easier if they're not. You get the resource and there's no threat to you. If they are, then all of a sudden, you know, the cost-benefit structure changes and, and we need to take this into account. And so, you know, animal behaviorists ever since then really do think like game theorists in the sense of strategic behavior. The word strategic behavior and status is peppered throughout the animal behavior literature. And um, I would argue 
argue that um, one of the um, biggest changes that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years, and actually the next book I have, the follow-up to the power book is all about social networks and non-humans. And basically, again, the way it started was animal behaviorists went, just went in and stole all the theory that exists on social networks from human, human stuff. And then they tinkered with it, modified it, made it apply to cases where things work over generations. And they went out and they looked at social network effects in non-humans. And they are everywhere in every possible context you can think of. And so the notion that we're talking about strategic intelligence, that we're talking about social intelligence, that's now part and parcel of the way that animal behaviorists think. I wouldn't say that the stealing is is unidirectional. Yeah, no. I think it's been a, a mutual that's, poaching. I mean, right. I think, uh, I mean, John Maynard Smith probably. I mean, if the Nobel Prize committee was a little bit more open minded back in in the eighties and nineties, right. I think John Maynard Smith should have gotten the prize right alongside John Nash because. Yeah. It's economists that have been stealing frequency dependence and yes. you know hawk and dove games and mixed strategy equilibria from from biologists, right? I mean, it's been uh, absolutely, been, absolutely, and it's I've been both ways, I, absolutely. And 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 I and I'm sorry, you know, I didn't, I, I I should have made that clearer. I was just talking about initially, like initially, we went in and we took mm -hmm. the economic theory. But you're absolutely right. After just a few years, it was a two-way street. Um, people were thinking of evolutionary games in humans and, and economics. And the same thing now for social networking. Um, initially, it was pretty much taking the mathematics that existed, and that was on human social behavior, and then, and then modifying it, and modifying it in really important ways where you can layer social networks on top of each other by studying non-humans. You can, you can look at social networks as as an entity in and of itself that changes from generation to generation. So it's absolutely a, a two-way street. Initially, we went in and took this stuff, but, but very quickly it changed to being um, a mutually beneficial relationship. Well, I think one key difference between humans and, and non-humans is that in most of the non-humans that you study in the power book, right, there seems to be something of a linear hierarchy, right? So, you know, every single kind of creature within a social group kind of knows where they stand in relationship to everyone else in some kind of bilateral comparison, right? And, you know, I think, I think in humans, it's, it's a much, much more difficult to, to make that claim. I mean, maybe within, you know, specific organizations, but, you know, humans belong to multiple organizations at the same time. So you can be you know, the bottom of the pyramid in your company and then be the head of your church or whatever. Yeah. Right. But, but with animals, it's, it, there seems to be always this pretty much this pretty clear sizing up of, you know, who's, who's on top of whom is it because they just have fewer, you know, fewer dimensions. I mean, you mentioned usually it's like the bigger one, right. That, you know, mm -hmm. dominates in, in many cases. First, I would say that most animal hierarchies are linear, like you're describing. So the alpha beats up the beta and the beta beats up the gamma all the way down, right? But there are also, um, there's also another kind of hierarchy that you, that you see as well, which is a little bit more despotic, where it's very clear who the top individual on in the hierarchy is, but it's not, everybody under them is, it's not so clear. And, and, and usually that's because the top individual has basically been so aggressive towards the individuals underneath it that they just don't interact with each other. 
very much. They don't interact with anybody. They just get beaten up by the top ranked individual. And then because they don't interact with each other very much, it's very difficult to determine who's the second ranked and who's the third ranked. So that's a very different reason for the uns- That's like the Hobbesian Leviathan, yeah. right? The Hobbesian Leviathan just makes, you know, everyone everyone's like a just a, a citizen, yeah. right? Yeah. So is it because they have fewer dimensions to sort of their social life? I think that might be part of it. I wouldn't say that in in a way that makes it sound as if their social intelligence is any less so for that reason. So for example, you know, we know now that we've started thinking game theoretically and social network wise, that even when there are these linear hierarchies, it's, it's not just a size thing. It also depends on experience. So if you've actually happened to win a lot of aggressive power contests, then that can rise you up in the hierarchy, even if you're physically not as large as some of the other individuals in your group. And on the other side of the coin... This is the win- the winner effect yeah. and the loser effect. I, I found this fascinating, yeah. right? There seems to be some path dependence, right? Or some, I don't know, positive feedback yeah mechanism and you describe how it works at kind of the hormonal level but but what's the evolutionary story for that i mean wouldn't you shouldn't you be a bayesian updater of some you know in some way where you know you make these gradual i guess incremental moves rather than i don't know how, how <sighs> why would the probability of losing a, a fight be affected by your 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 prior why wouldn't every encounter just be like a blank slate where you start from scratch and you you know you your objective power or size would be the determinant. What's the story there? Yeah. So they do a bit of Bayesian updating, but but generally speaking, not nearly as much as as you would find in, in humans, for example. And, and so I think what's going on here is that, you know, selection has favored these these effects over time. And it's interesting. You, you find the winner effect and the loser effect all throughout the animal kingdom. And, and, and by that, we just mean the winner effect is if you've won in the past, it increases your probability of winning in the future. And, and we know that it's actually the experience per se that changes- Control, Controlling for you know, underlying characteristics, exactly, right? Exactly, so if you control for the underlying characteristics, you can, you can pinpoint these winner and loser effects. Now, even though both of them exist in the animal kingdom, loser effects, are in fact much more pronounced and 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 much more widespread. If you lose, particularly if you lose multiple times in a row, individuals are both much more likely to lose in future contests, and they're also much less likely to engage in future contests. So we, we would call this depression, right? And if it was humans, we would call it depression. Um, right? the, the idea that they're not engaging in future contests, you know, that might fall under that depression rubric. I mean, there are probably other terms as well that we could use. But so why is an interesting question. I mean, historically, people sort of documented the winner and loser effects first and sort of later on went back and started thinking, why? And right now, if you've lost a fight, or if you've lost particularly a sequence of fights, then that's really important information. It tells you that if you go at it again, the odds are not good. I mean, you've, you have lost and you're a proven loser in the sense, especially if you've lost a few times in a row. So there are different ways to get resources. 
One of them is to fight for them. Another one is to be perhaps more, a bit more surreptitious about how you go about trying to get food or mates. And if it looks like, you know, the, the getting into power contests is not the right way for you, then you should try something else. And so it is good information to know, to be able to somehow take into account that you've lost. And right, we, it, mechanistically, it probably deals with changes in hormone levels. Winter effects too are useful. If you've won a couple of times, that's useful information and winners are likely to win again. They're also much more likely to get into contests again. I don't know this experimentally. So this is just me. Uh, this is just a conjecture on my part. My gut sense is that it's not quite as good information as losing in the sense that there's probably a greater chance that you've won a bunch of fights simply because you've picked on, you've picked on individuals who are easy to defeat. You know, you can make the same claim for losing that you happen to go up against a bunch of individuals that just happen to be really good fighters. But I think that that's probably a stronger thing with the winner effect on the other, you know, the flip side of that. And so I think while it exists, the conditions under which it fa it's favored are probably much more restrictive. And so we don't see that as much as we see the loser effect. And, you know, historically, that's, that's the way people started thinking of these, what we might think of, uh, you know, in the book, they're called non-intrinsic effects or extrinsic effects. So intrinsic effects might be like sort of how big you are, right? Or how strong you are. And there's, gazillions of studies that say that matters in non-humans. But the winner and loser effects were saying sort of things external to that. Experience, personal experience matters. And that led into the other work that I was sort of referencing before, which is eavesdropping and spying on others. Because now, in addition to the fact that yeah. you might have lost, it's actually pretty relevant who out there in your group has also lost when they've gotten into fights because maybe they're an easy mark for you. And maybe individuals who you've seen win a bunch yeah. are individuals you should stay away from. It, you know, you might still be aggressive, but you're not going to be aggressive with them. So make sure everybody sees you win and nobody sees you lose, right? So that's even a different, that that's related, but that's even a little bit different. So what I'm talking about is that if you happen to be a good spy, you can look in and see who's won and who who has lost and use that information. Mm -hmm. Animals also have these audience effects, which basically involves catering how you present yourself in a power struggle, depending on who's watching. And so crow ravens are masters of this. If they're in a power struggle and, and, there's a lot of screaming in Raven power struggles. And it turns out that if you're in this power struggle and you're on the losing end of it, then how many of these very loud calls you give off when you're losing depends on who is watching that fight. If the audience is made up of your relatives and friends, then you really are loud because what happens is the audience often comes in and gets involved. And if they get involved and they're your friend and family, they're going to get involved in your side. If you're on the losing end of a struggle and the audience is made up of your opponent's friends and family, then you 
tend to really tone it down because the last thing you want is that audience to get involved. I mean, this is really unbelievably subtle and complex behavior. And it's not just ravens. It's penguins do the same thing. I mean, and and we, we see it in all sorts of species, not not just ravens. I mean, it's it's really it, it's really something chimpanzees do it, for example. And and it really is a testament to why studying power in non-humans in and of itself is inherently fascinating. Well, you make the claim that, I mean, all good evolutionary biologists will make the claim that, you know, organisms are doing some kind of cost-benefit analysis, right? And so, you know, the pursuit of power has its benefits, obviously, right? I mean, power is a good thing. Having the ability to command resources is right. a good thing. Um, but But it comes at a cost, right? And so, you know, you explore a little bit of the, these costs, and I was actually surprised by some of the costs. I was under the impression that, for instance, if you are at the top of the pecking order, so to speak, you know, you have lower stress hormones and right. have a pretty good life. You you point out that there's, you know, there's some, some costs associated with that. Right. And, obviously in equilibrium, the benefits and the costs are going to be a kind of in, in a, in a right, race with absolutely. one another, right? Otherwise, everybody would be trying to topple right. the I mean, the so the costs, you know, run from, you know, the somewhat obvious, which is that, you know, if you get into a lot of power struggles and you're on top, it's energetically costly. I mean, you're, you're going to be fighting a lot more than others in your group. So there's that cost. But there's also, you know, and, and sort of related to that, it, but not the same thing, is that in some systems, not all systems, but in some systems, individuals at the top of the hierarchy really do have high stress hormone levels. I will say it's more common for individuals at the other end, at the bottom of the hierarchy to have higher stress hormone levels. But sometimes we see them in the top ranked individuals. And we think that's just because there's so much at stake and there's so much gatekeeping that you have to do to stay on the top. I mean, you basically have to be monitoring everybody below you to make sure that that they're not doing things that will allow them to rise up on the hierarchy. And, you know, that's that's a very stressful thing. There are a number of different studies that show, and this is, to me, this was very counterintuitive when I first saw it. So many times, if an animal is at the top of a hierarchy, and their position changes. They don't become second in the hierarchy or third in the hierarchy. They will often completely plummet to the bottom. It's as if... Yeah, it's that's like right. upper out. It's, it, it's like it, tenure. It's, it's so <laughs> stressful to be at the top in some situations, in some species, that if you lose that position, you just plummet and everybody knows it. So there are these, there's one study in the book, we talk about rhesus macaques on an island near Puerto Rico. And once an individual sort of falls from power, they fall dramatically, they fall to the bottom. And then all of a sudden, everybody in the, else in the group is, becomes aware of this. And individuals who in, you know, would never have attacked that individual, come anywhere near it, in fact, or all of a sudden joining in on the party, beating that individual up. They wind up like Muammar right. Gaddafi, right? Or, yeah, or once you lose power, right? it's bad. It's not like you lose a little power. You tend to lose a lot of power. Another not-so-intuitive cost is that in many species, if you look at sort of 
health in general, but in particular parasites and pathogens, a lot of times it is the case that individuals on the bottom have it much worse, but not always. Sometimes individuals higher at the top of a hierarchy have these, what we might think of as health-related issues. Part of it is the stress hormones we've talked about, because we know in, in humans, and we also know in lots of other primates and lots of other species, having high, having consistently high stress hormone levels is just not good health-wise. The other thing is that when you're at the top of the hierarchy, you are often interacting with everybody in there a lot, just keeping them in their place. What that means is that, you know, particularly parasites that are on fur or that can jump from individual to individual very easily. If you're at the top of the hierarchy, you're interacting with lots of individuals, you may get some of their parasites might hop onto you. Um, even their internal parasites, when you interact with them, you know, there are all kinds of bodily fluids that, that are involved in these things sometimes. And that- You probably get more STDs, um, right? Right. So, the, right. It, because, because many times being at the top of the power structure means getting lots and lots of matings with many, many individuals. And more matings you have, the higher the probability of getting some sexually transmitted disease. Right. Now, one of the things that, that I, I thought was fascinating was your discussion on conflict, right? And how conflict is very expensive. And so if there's a fairly high probability around who's going to win a conflict, then the best thing to do is to stay out of that conflict. And so there's, you know, you describe how most conflict begins with agonistic displays, and then it gradually escalates if there's some ambiguity, right? So anything you can do to kind of convince the other side that you're going to win is going to avoid the costly conflict, <laughs> yeah. right? I thought, found it fascinating how the, the, the models developed and then people went out into the field and they were able to kind of confirm that these, these models indeed do predict what these creatures were doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, if we circle back to something you said earlier, the, these models that we're talking about, they really are Bayesian. Thomas Schelling, right? Schelling was involved well, Tom, in Schelling also. Thomas Schelling was involved yeah. in organizing a conference at which some of the animal behaviorists were involved to come and talk about. In, the, in in that case, it was a spider species. The theory is so. The theory was developed initially in animal behavior by two Swedish animal behaviorists, Magda Manquist and Olaf Limar. And but basically, what they did was they went into the statistical actuarial literature and looked at. I don't know if they were technically Bayesian models, but but essentially they looked at these models that were Bayesian-like that that basically said um, that that led led Lemur and, and Inquest to predict that animals would sort of go through the sequence where initially when they were interacting in a power struggle, they would use the lowest cost aggressive behavior or display, and they would assess each other, and then they would determine each one would determine whether or not it was necessary to go up to the next level in terms of how dangerous the, the, the behavior was. And so they were studying this in, in a species of cichlid fish. And, you know, they would, they would, they would study this and they would see, you know, they, they do these displays that are fairly, they're not costly very, and they're not particularly dangerous. And then if that didn't seem to settle the dispute, then they moved up to a, a, a little bit more dangerous behavior. And again, they assessed each other. And if that doesn't settle the dispute, if they kill, still can't figure out who's the, the dominant, then they move up to the next danger. And sometimes they can move up to really, really dangerous um, behaviors. But you know, along the way, 
you're going to get more, there's a higher probability that one of the individuals is going to drop out. They're going to assess the situation like they were willing to go this far, but clearly this other individual is not worth taking the chance to go to the next level. Yeah, I mean, in the in the book, I think we tell the story of, of, of um, I, I think the way that Schelling is involved was that there was a conference that was organized that was sort of on um, nuclear war of all things, right? And, or the, you know, the danger of nuclear war. And, and they brought in, in this case, somebody who was working with spiders testing this, what's called the sequential assessment model that we've just been talking about, to give an overview of, of sort of what they had found in non-humans and, and what it all means. That fellow's name was Steve, Steve Ostetter. And he came and he went there and he you know, tells the story of how bizarre it was to be in this room with all these people that, you know, were studying nuclear, uh, nuclear weapon disarmament strategies, all sorts of things. Um, and standing up there and telling them, hey, you know, you know, we've been testing these models in spiders and maybe they're gonna, you know, maybe they're relevant. Um, so yeah, there it really is a very kind of constantly updating this the assessment and and making the best possible decision. Yeah, I've got some guy who's, who's threatening to sue me. And so he keeps calling me and saying, I'm gonna sue you and I'm gonna sue you. I'm like, you know, right. go away. He's like, well, I want to, I want to resolve this amicably. You know, I don't, I don't want to go to court. And it's just like, all right. So I just have to basically hire an expensive litigator. And that's my way of, that's the next level up. Say, Hey, I got an expensive right. litigator now go away. <laughs> you know, right. Right. Yeah. You don't, don't want to go to trial, you know, if you can avoid it. But you probably know, but you know, um, Frank's book, Passions Within Reason. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, yeah. I mean, what you're describing uh -huh. is, you know, just this kind of thing that he was talking about. Sorry. So go ahead. Go ahead. Exactly. Well, my favorite example of this was, were the hermit crabs. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like they seem to be trading up their and trading down their real estate with, you know, quite some <laughs> frequency, right? They just, right. they're, they're yeah. always, they're always swapping their, their shells kind of up and down. It feels like me when I was, I moved like 50 times in my life. I'm like, get bigger apartment, smaller apartment, <laughs> you know, get a house and then get an apartment. And then, you know, because you know, yeah. your income goes up, goes down, et cetera. It's, yeah. it's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the person who did that work on the hermit crab, it's Robert Elwood, who's um, in Ireland. Um, the way he describes it is it's, it's sort of like, you know, somebody who loves cars. I mean, you love this car. It's the best car in the world until you go to the show next year and you see this other car that's even better. And you basically want to trade up to that. In the hermit crabs, everything depends on uh, these hermit crabs getting shells to protect their soft bodies. And they get these shells in lots of ways. Sometimes there are just empty shells around and they just move into them. But oftentimes the best shells happen to be on the backs of other hermit crabs who aren't particularly keen on giving them up. And so you get these power struggles and it's just amazing. I mean, you know, the hermit crabs have these large pincers and and they're quite dangerous. But in addition to being weapons, they, they're assessment tools. So what a crab will often do when it's in one of these power struggles for a shell that it wants is there'll be a lot of tapping where they take their claw and they're tapping on the shell of the other crab. And essentially what Elwood knows from some pretty interesting experiments is that that gives them the sense of how large the shell is because that echoing information and the sound and all of that gives them information about how big the shell is. And it also um, allows them a sense of how big the crab inside the shell is. 
And you know, what he's shown so beautifully is that they do these assessments and, um, and often like kicking the tires, right? They're kicking the tires. It, yeah. And, and exactly. And, and, and oftentimes if you're inside that shell, so I should also say the other side of the coin about the tapping is not just you're getting information as the tapper, but you're also getting information in if your shell is being tapped because how big the the claw is and how rapidly is tapping it gives you information about your opponent and if it looks like you're in trouble then oftentimes uh what happens is the larger individual or the, the individual who's doing this the probing will pull the other one out and just move in and and then you get and then you, of course you get this yeah. you know you get this fascinating sort of string of events now all of a sudden you have a crab who has no shell and has to go around immediately finding the shell and and the odds are that the one well, they usually find, takes the shell he'll usually take the shell of the invader right he will take the shell of the invader and then and sometimes it's not a good fit so it's it's not like you can move into any shell and it works perfectly. So if it happens to be a good fit, then you move in after you've been kicked out of yours. But if it's not a good fit, then you basically got to find something pretty fast. And so that means finding something empty. And if you find something empty, it's probably not going to be all that great. It might be good enough to move into, but then you're going to be going around trying to find somebody who's got a better one that maybe you can beat up. And it's just, um, it's, it, it's just beautiful. I mean, unless you're the crab that gets kicked mm -hmm. out of their shell, then it's not so beautiful. But, but otherwise, to just watch it is amazing. Well, you know, another aspect of the book that I really enjoyed was the part about territorial conflicts. And there were two things that I found super interesting. One is this idea of demarcations and kind of natural boundaries. And I guess, you know, this is really, if you go back to shelling, it's kind of about salience or when you're doing negotiations, oftentimes negotiations, you settle around like, you know, round numbers. And, and it seems like you, you could create these kind of salient boundaries experimentally by like putting tin cans or whatever on, on the ground. And, and these creatures would say, okay, now we have a clear boundary. We're going to have less conflict. Whereas right. if, if there was no clear boundary, it would be, there'd be lots of, con and you know, we see that in, in, with countries, right? If you have a river or a mountain range, or even just yep. like some random meridian, you know, right. you're less likely to have conflict. People have done some really nice work in this in, in wasps who basically use sort of fallen twigs as territorial boundaries. And, and the same team, and it's actually somebody in my, my own department, Perry Eason, um, she and her students have done, done, looked at this in cichlid fish in Nicaragua, where they were using the tin cans you're talking about to artificially give them territorial boundaries. And, and you see that, you know, aggression decreases when they have these, in, in a sense, arbitrary boundaries. And we think it's simply because without those boundaries the animals are sort of constantly trying to figure out the nature of power in the individuals around them whereas if somebody has a territory that in and of itself that's demarcated that in and of itself tells you something it means they're able to at least to that point they've been able to defend that territory and they may be particularly keen on keeping it which means that maybe that's not where you should try to build your territory and and that sort of thing well the other thing that i found interesting about territories is this idea of kind of home field advantage where you know, sometimes a, a smaller group can defeat a larger group, or at least, you know, either because they understand the territory better or they're more willing to fight for it. But then there's also this, this idea that if uh, a group gets too big, then you have a much higher percentage of slackers right, in, right. In, in the group. The advantage of size when it comes to group competition 
uh, has diminishing returns. Yeah, right. So in, in terms of, of the group dynamics, absolutely. I mean, or even territorial dynamics for individuals, you know, we know from lots and lots of studies that once an individual has spent the time establishing and getting to know its territory, for example, you know, where's the food? right? Uh, where is it safe from predators? All of a sudden, that individual is willing to fight a lot more than it would be for some random chunk of territory that you, some random chunk of land that you, you threw it on, right? So the, the investment that they've made is valuable. It's not just it's not a concord fallacy thing. It's, it's that the information is useful. I mean, it matters to know yeah. where the food and the mates and everything is are. Um, with respect to the to the group size thing, right? I mean, in group territories, so there there are individual territories, and then in some species, groups have territories. And there again, you know, um, there's the investment in the territory and the information you get, but also when groups become too large, then what happens in power struggles is that all of a sudden some of the individuals strategically make the decision I'll let the others in the group fight it out and let them pay the costs for everybody, including me, to hold on to the territory. And so what that means is that if you're just sort of counting heads, you're not actually getting a very good sense of who's likely to be involved in a power struggle because you might the invading group might have 10 individuals and the home group might have 50, but if only 10 of them are willing to fight and, and then they just going to let everybody else, um, everybody else just that free rides in that group, then all of a sudden, you know, it's not 10 against 50, it's 10 against 10 or, um, and those 10 really, I mean, it, you know, so like you say, it, it, it it's not inherently, a good thing you have the free rider problem when you have too many individuals. Well, Lee, I think we could talk all day. There's so much interesting stuff in, in this book. We didn't even get into discussion about coalitions and how lower ranked individuals can gang up on, you know, higher ranked individuals. We didn't talk about how status can be reshuffled. I found that interesting. You could take a group and kind of separate them, bring them back together, and and then you might get a, a different, different ranking. And, and, you know, so there's a little bit of kind of randomness in these rankings and you know in general you talk about this kind of living soap opera right which is what you're watching and i think it, it sounds maybe even more interesting than the kind of soap operas that you could catch on you know afternoon television so i recommend everybody check out this book power in the wild but also don't forget how to tame a fox we didn't even get into that and all the other books we no, thank look you. forward to chatting again sometime soon yes i enjoyed this very much and um, i look forward to that as well Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Unsiloed.